I want to talk about how we can better understand our city. And to do so, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at just a few verses in Matthew chapter 9. And while you're opening your Bibles or your phone apps to Matthew chapter 9, I want to tell you this story. I was a business major when I was an undergrad. Um, and if you're a business, any, any business majors in the room, business communication, okay, you guys know that. All, all you do as a business major is case studies. At some point, it's just you look at a company <clears throat> and you evaluate them based on one of the five big areas in a, in a company, like their finance and, you know, cash flow and all that stuff, or their strategy or their organizational culture, <clears throat> product and development, um, marketing, that kind of stuff. So I remember one of my fa favorite case studies of any company in business school was the case study of KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Anybody ever eat at Kentucky Fried Chicken? Any fans here of Kentucky Fried Chicken? Okay, Christians, cool, all right. Um, Kentucky Fried, how many of you have never heard of Kentucky Fried Chicken? You've never been, never heard of it? Okay, we're aware of KFC, okay, Luisa, but she's from Brazil, so that's, that's understandable, so just kidding. Uh, KFC. KFC is a, a fried chicken company, obviously started in Kentucky, and um, they decided in the 1970s that they're going to enter, they're going to penetrate the Japanese market, okay? And this is ambitious. Uh, ja uh, Japan, if you've ever been to Japan, you know there's a kind of a cultural phenomena where J Japanese people love Americana. They love American icons and things like that. So they said, hey, we'll take Colonel Sanders, we'll go into Japan, it'll be awesome. So they go in, they open up their first storefront, their flagship store. Uh, they put a picture or a life-size model of Colonel Sanders outside. Isidore, go ahead and throw that on the screen there. Yeah, check it out, right there. Right? And they, uh, they put it outside in the main area, and, um, you know, they open the store, and they do all the advertising. They blitzkrieg the whole uh, city uh, with advertising. Open the store, no one comes. First week, no one's coming through. No one's coming. Second week, no one's coming. And they're like, we can't figure it out. We have this awesome product. We've done the advertising. And what they would notice is Japanese people would walk by it on the street, and they would be intrigued by Colonel Sanders, but then they would read the slogan, and they would kind of do this thing. And you would see, like, if this is the door, these customers would, like, step through, and they'd smell, and they'd look around, and then they'd, like, scamper off like they're afraid. And the people at KFC could not figure out what was going on. So they hired a consultant, a Japanese consultant. And he came in, and they said, hey, can you help us figure out what's going on? He said, yeah, give me a while. So he takes a week, and he comes back, and he goes, guys, your problem is really easy. Like, I know exactly what your problem is. And they said, what is it? They said, it's your tagline. It's scaring all the customers away. You guys know what the tagline is for KFC? Finger licking good, right? Which is a very American phrase, right? It's the idea that you're eating this greasy chicken and it's so good, you're like, I can't stop there. I've got to just, you know. The only two things that it's appropriate to lick your fingers are KFC and Cheetos, right? Just Cheetos once you get the orange on, right? Americans have no problem with this. But in Japan, this is an issue. And not because of hygiene reasons. Um, I, I asked a friend who's Japanese, and I confirmed with Yuki over here, who is half Brazilian, half Japanese, because that's a thing. Um, and, and here's the phrase when they transliterated finger looking good into Japanese. Here was, here's what it is. Yubi name oidesu, which translates like eating baby's fingers. Because here's the... Here's the, here's, the, um, here's the phrase that gets translated. The only person in Japan who licks their fingers because of their um, preference for health and good hygiene are babies, are infants, right? They lick their fingers when they're growing up. And so the only way to communicate that is like eating babies' fingers. So these, 
customers are walking into KFC and they're looking and they're smelling and they're going, those are baby's fingers right over there? I'm out, right? And you gotta imagine, they've got these little nuggets that are about this size and they see this and they're just like, what kind of monsters are coming into Japan? Like, the last time we've had a monster like that, that was Godzilla. This is really scary for us. No way, right? Well, why do I tell this story? Uh, I tell this story for this reason. Because in uh, Japan, KFC struggled to understand their city. And the same thing is true for us oftentimes. We struggle to understand our city and the friends who live here. Uh, many of us have grown up in the local church, and we've been Christians since we were fetuses, right? How, just show of hands, how many of you guys would say, I grew up in church, I went to church all the time? Okay, look, look at all the hands out here. This is a sea of people who, like, the, from the time they were conceived, it was like almost a holy conception, right? They were conceived, and immediately they went to VBS, right? That's the thing. And so here's the danger of growing up in church, which is a really great thing. My kids are growing up in church, but here's the danger. When you grow up in church... You always go to church. It's never a question of if you're going. It's a question of when you're going. It's never a question of if you're going. It's a question of where you're going. And for those of us who grew up in church, we know church language. We know church people. And so when we turn 18 and we move to a new city and we have to pick a church for the first time, it like just blows our mind. We're like, what do I do? And here's what you do. You find the church in that town that most resembles the church you grew up in, right? Because that's what you know. And that's how church people think. Here's the problem. Um, most of our friends who are not in church are not church people. They don't think like us. They don't make the same cultural assumptions. And if we don't understand our city, then it's going to be quite a challenge for us to be able to engage our city and invite our city to come to church with us. And so what I want to do today is just walk you through a passage of scripture from Jesus's life and watch how Jesus approaches this situation. Because the way that Jesus does it is an incredibly different way, an incredibly significant but different way than how many of us approach a situation. I think there's a lot we can learn. And so as we jump into Matthew 9, I want to invite you to pray with me and we'll, we'll get going. Jesus, would you teach us today to see our friends through your eyes? Help us to see from the way you see them. Help us, Jesus, to become burdened for the way you're burdened for them. Help us to move past our own biases and our conveniences and everything else going on so that we can see the world like you see the world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, we are going to start in verse 35. Verse 35. Matthew writes, And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. So notice, what Jesus is doing in this particular period of his ministry is he's just going city by city, walking in the city, meeting everybody, knocking on doors. Hey, I'm Jesus. It's almost like he's running for political office, right? Like, hi, I'm Jesus. I'm the Lord of the universe. Nice to meet you. So talk to me about your life. What would you like to see improved, right? He's, he's doing a campaign here, but he's on the ground, eyeball to eyeball with people in the cities, right? That's his strategy. How did Jesus minister to people? He went to where they were. 
And he'd talk to them. He would go to the synagogue, the biggest place in that city, and he would just talk, and he would teach, and he would have a conversation. This was his strategy, really radical. Find out where people are, go be with them, engage them in conversation, invite them to more. Radical, right? And that's what he's doing right here, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, I want you to notice three things in this passage that are going to inform the way we understand uh, the first step and how to bring our friends to church. And the first thing is this. I want you to notice the cities. Jesus goes to cities. Again, gets on the ground, eyeball to eyeball, actually meets with people. He doesn't make assumptions. He doesn't just guesstimate or by implication come to a conclusion. He's not like Sherlock Holmes going in and like scanning the crowd and being like, yeah, I know everybody. Even though he could, he's actually shaking hands, kissing babies, talking to people. Jesus is relational. He's getting to know people. He's looking past the crowds. He's looking at the people who are there. The struggle that we have often, many of us who grew up in the church, is we don't know our city because we've grown up in the bubble. And as soon as we left that bubble, we found a new bubble. It's not because we're bad people. It's because we, we move towards our comfort level. And it's a little bit uncomfortable to put yourself in a position to meet new people. Anyone who's an extrovert or introvert can admit this. Meeting new people is sometimes pretty dicey. But I want us to look at a 30,000-foot view of our city because I want us to take the first step towards understanding our friend groups that's around us. In, the, um, in 2017, at the very end, a guy named Barna released a, a study on Orlando, and um, it was all the cities actually in the world, and we got the study at the very end, and we looked at the statistics, and it was, it was shocking uh, what it concluded. The biggest one that stood out is this, and it's on your screen. Orlando is the top-rated, most friendly city for non-religious people in Florida. That is a mouthful, so let me break this down. Uh, in, the, in the state of Florida, um, they polled all the people in cities, and they said, how do you self-identify when it comes to religion? And there's an option on there that just says none. I don't identify as religious at all. Just religion, God, Jesus, or Allah, or Hinduism, Mormonism, none of that. Judaism, none of that ever comes across my desk. I don't even think about that. And so I'm non-religious. I'm just either atheist or agnostic. I just don't care. Right? And it's been really interesting over the last 10 years because sociologists of religion are now trying to assess, better assess what this crowd is, because it's an emerging crowd uh, in America, especially among millennials, people our age. And so what was interesting about this is Orlando, of all the cities in Florida, rated at the highest uh, city in Florida, the state of Florida, as a place that's most friendly for non-religious people. Miami is number two, okay? I'm from Texas, Okay, right? Yes, God's home state. There you go. Um, I'm from Texas. When I, when I grew up thinking about Florida, I knew like maybe three things about Florida. Tim Tebow, right? Uh, I knew Disney. And I knew Scarface, right? And Scarface takes place in Miami, right? Okay? And so I'm like, I'm, if I'm betting, I'm like, what's the most non-religious city in Florida? It's Miami, right? That's where Scarface is. I know what happens there. Like, that place is a shady spot, right? I've seen The Godfather. A lot of bad stuff happens in Miami, right? Sorry if you're from Miami. I'm just telling you, this was my, my bias, okay? Grand Theft Auto is in Miami. Miami Vice, right? 
So I'm just like, Miami's probably this horrible place full of dark people. No, you know what's darker than Miami according to, I don't know, science? Orlando, okay? Orlando, uh, in Orlando, uh, about six out of every ten people identify as non-religious. Six out of ten. So if you're at a party and there are ten people there, six of them have no idea and no interest in talking about Jesus. Of the four people remaining, one of them is non-Christian, and the other three are Christian in some way, either really conservative or moderate or liberal, right? So Bible-believing Christianity as a culture uh, has factored prominently into the city of Orlando. Orlando used to be part of the Bible Belt cities. Uh, Orlando used to be a very Christian culture-friendly city. That is no more. The, the better than the half, 60% of the people who live in Orlando have no religious affiliation. They just don't care, and they're not going to have a conversation with you. So I want you to understand, in your city, the city you live in, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, it's not that they may hate Jesus or love Jesus. It's they're indifferent to him altogether. This is the city we live in. And so approaching this city being for this city, trying to engage people in this city is going to take a different approach than just walking up and, and going, you know what, God loves you. Because you're assuming they believe in God in the first place. The, the conversation is going to have to begin something like this. There is a God, right? And that's the first argument you're going to have to have with your friends. Not that we all get in arguments. I'm just saying this is the first philosophical conversation to have. This is the city. Uh, the second thing I want you to notice here uh, in this passage is that Jesus has compassion on them. Jesus has compassion on them. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has compassion? Compassion means putting yourself in someone else's position and then logically working it out in your mind and in your heart. Compassion means putting yourself in someone else's position. It means thinking about yourself and you, you see a person, you don't know them, you go, okay, if I grew up in their situation, how would I logically and emotionally work this out in my head and in my heart? Um, or put your friend in their position someone you know and love, and saying, if this was my friend, how would I respond to them? And would that change things? Let me give you an example. Imagine you're driving uh, down the road, and uh, you see somebody, you, you, you're kind of driving, you see they have a flat tire, they're outside, they're trying to figure out how to kind of change the flat tire. Again, you're just on a busy road, and you see it, right? Um, most of the time when I do this, and I see somebody with a flat tire, I maybe give one second of attention to it. I'm like, oh, that sucks, and then I keep going, right? That's my whole interaction with them. Like, that is really terrible for you, but I got to go to Starbucks because, you know, they have hot tea, and I got to get some hot tea, right? Because I'm thinking pretty much about me when I'm driving, as most of us are. Not because we're bad people, not because we're selfish. We just have a goal. We're trying to get from A to B, and this seems to be something that's quite inconvenient, and I don't know this person, so what do I care? But something interesting happened to me on Wednesday. I was at UCF. Uh, I, I helped uh, co-direct our UCF ministry, for those of you who may not know. And so we had a UCF staff team meeting, um, and we were there, and we were having fun. And uh, one of the persons on our uh, staff team is Jay, who's a coach in our UCF ministry, who is singing up here, right? And Jay drives this red car, right, with Texas license plates. And uh, I saw it when I went to the parking garage. I was like, oh, there's Jay's car. Cool. Texas license plate. She's a Christian. Awesome. So then I go. We go to Starbucks. I get my tea. We're having uh, a good meeting. I get back in my car. I'm driving back to work, back to here, to this campus, because I had another meeting. And so I'm between A and B, and I'm going, and I look over, and I see there's a car on the side of the road, and there's a flat tire, and it's a red car, the exact car that's Jay's car. 
And what was interesting is I didn't just go, oh, that sucks for them, and keep going. I actually stopped, jerked over, rolled down my window, looked at the license plate, and was like, ooh, is this Jay? And I saw a Wisconsin license plate, and I was like, okay, no, it's not Jay. Jay would never have a Wisconsin license plate. And then I just kept going, right? But for that three or four seconds, when I thought that person was someone I knew, my disposition changed towards them, right? I was like, oh, this is a friend. It's not just that it sucks for her. It's that I could be someone who helps. That's called compassion. It's putting yourself in someone's position and thinking and, and feeling your way through it. How would I respond in the situation? Or putting a friend uh, into that position and thinking it through. It's one thing to see a homeless person on the side of the street and just have a thought about them. It's another thing to think, what if this is my sister or my dad? or my brother, or my friend. And the way that Jesus operates, when he looks on people in the crowd, he doesn't see a lot of statistics or numbers. He sees people that are his friends, and he has compassion on them. He says, how can I help them? How can I come to their aid? What do they need? How can I serve them? And if we're going to be the kind of people who reach Orlando, we're going to need to become the kind of people who practice compassion on the regular. That it becomes, it informs what we do and how we talk and how we think and how we act. Third thing I want us to notice this uh, is, is this. Oh, actually, no. Let me talk about the logic of compassion. I apologize. Let me, let me tease this out just a little bit more um, because it's going to set up the next thing we're going to talk about. Uh, and that's this. I wanna, I, I, I wanna, I'm concerned that uh, when we think about compassion, we tend to think compassion is this feeling thing. And I'm purposely calling compassion something that's very logical. So let me just have a little sermon within the sermon here to unpack this. Uh, so here's the, the logical syllogism I want to press towards you in terms of how we think through logic, uh, think through compassion logically. Number one, I want you to consider that every human being wrestles with why. Every human being wrestles with why. So think about it. Uh, any of you guys know kids or have kids or around kids for any amount of time, okay? You, you know, little kids, like five, six, seven, right? You know this, kids always ask why about everything. And you know this inevitably when you try to put them to bed. Like you're, you're babysitting and you're trying to put them down for a nap. Hey, it's time for a nap. Why? Well, because your mom said that this was the arbitrary time you had to go and she wanted to make it really difficult on you and me at the same time. That's why, right? You're like, well, why did she pick that time? I don't know, because she loves 2 o'clock, right? Well, why? I don't know. Maybe two's her favorite number. Well, why? I, look, I don't know. Because I said so. Because she said so. I don't know, right? You just have to pull out the trump card. Kids are curious. They ask why. Kids don't suddenly stop becoming curious. What happens for most kids is they enter elementary school and they learn to read. And now that they know how to read, they can begin to answer questions for themselves by reading books or, and now in our case, by going on Google and searching for things. It seems really dicey to have a bunch of five-year-olds on Google, but, you know, whatever, right? This is the world we live in. So every one of us asks why. We're just always asking why all the time. We wrestle with it as part of the human conundrum. Number two, I want you to know that most of our friends have plenty of what, but little of why. Plenty of what, but little of why. So most of our friends have a ton of why questions, because everyone wrestles with it, but they have very little of the answers to why. Instead, they have a lot of what. Think about this. You guys just came back from Christmas, right? Okay, we had Christmas. You see friends after Christmas, like the very next day, I guarantee you one of the first questions you ask is, what did you get for Christmas? 
what did you get for Christmas? And you're like, oh, I got this. Oh, I got this. And it becomes kind of this, like, comparison thing. And, you know, for some of us, we're like, you got that clothing? Cool. Can we switch and borrow that sometime, right? You got that makeup? We don't share makeup, but maybe we could, right? So you're having these conversations all the time, right? I was obviously talking about two guys having the makeup conversation. But anyway, the point of this is we are talking about what stuff, right? What, what do you want? What, what do you have? What do you and for most of our friends, they have lots of what? In Orlando, you can have stuff. You have access to housing, although very expensive. You have access to public transportation. You have access to Disney. You have access to Universal, SeaWorld, Fun Spot, right? You have plenty of entertainment options. You can go to Disney Springs. You can go Universal, uh, you know, the City Walk. Uh, you have access to UCF's campus where you can go hammocking. You have access to the beach on either coast, right? You have access to nature preserves. You have tons of what, and most of our friends have tons of what. But here's the thing. Everybody struggles with why, and the reality of most of our friends is they don't have good why answers. They don't have good why answers, right? Or questions to our, uh, answers to our why questions. Questions like this. Why did this happen to me? Why can't I get a boyfriend or girlfriend? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Why is, this, why is there evil in the world? And why do I keep messing up? Why do I keep messing up? Most of our friends wrestle with this on a daily basis. And if they're non-religious, they have no answer to this. Because the only way to begin to answer why questions is with religion, with philosophy, with worldviews. And if you're a nun, you have no answers to this. So everyone struggles with why. Most of our friends have a lot of what, but very little why. And here's the dangerous part. Many of our friends use their what to distract from their lack of why. Many of our friends use their what to distract from their lack of why. And for most of us, when we see this, we struggle to have compassion on them. And that's why Jesus describes people in a very different way. And here's what he says. It's the third word. It's the word helpless. Helpless. The word helpless here doesn't mean like, like bless their heart. He's not speaking like Christian culturees that they're helpless. Helpless here means to be enfeebled through exhaustion or to grow weary or to be faint of heart. These are people who are tired and burdened from the weightiness of a why with no answer. They are sheep without a shepherd, meaning no one has helped walk them through coming to helpful and healthy answers to their why questions. And Jesus looks on them and says, these are sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, just to give you a cross-reference, in the Old Testament, there's this verse here, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. In other words, what the writer of Proverbs is saying is, where people don't have answers to the question of why, to the ultimate questions, they perish, they become helpless, they become weary, they break down, they become depressed, they become disillusioned, and they don't know what to do. And here's what compassion looks like. When Jesus looks on to people, our friends, who are helpless, okay? Jesus, number one, recognizes these are people who are unhealthy. Something's wrong. These people are helpless. But he doesn't do what a lot of cultural Christians do or what we sometimes feel tempted to do. He doesn't begin to make this a moral issue, right? We see our friends and, you know, they're, you know our, our roommate forever. Maybe you have a roommate, for example. He's just like hooking up with everybody or she's hooking up with everybody. And as a Christian, you feel the need to have like a moral conversation there. You're like, well, you know this isn't right, right? And he's like, I don't care. It feels good. And you're like, uh, well, it feels good now. But, you know, later there's like diseases and you're going to go to hell and all these things, right? And you just have that conversation, right? 
Well, and, and part of this is there's some truth in that, but we want to take something that's unhealthy and say, you know what's at the root of this really unhealthy situation? A moral problem. And here's what Jesus says. He says, this is unhealthy, but, but what if your friends who sleep around too much, what if they're using sex as a way to distract them from the reality that they have no answers to the why question? And so they're using their what to distract from the why. Some of you have friends who drink way too much, right? They turn 18 and are like, I'm away from home, right? And they figure out a way to get alcohol. And at first they're drinking really terrible alcohol, right? And then maybe they get a job and they can buy a little better alcohol. And they're, you know, they get into the whole wine phase, which you guys maybe are not into that yet, where they're like talking about reds and whites and having that whole conversation. They drink way too much. They're like snobs about what you're drinking. Oh, you're drinking that? I drink craft beer. Okay, if you want to drink Natty Light, that's fine. But we got craft beer over here. And you're just like, you're just like, you look at them and you go, this is really unhealthy, and we want to make it a moral issue, right? But Jesus, when he looks on our friends, he has compassion for them. He says, what if your friends aren't drinking like this because they're immoral? What if your friends are drinking like this because they don't have answers to the why question, and they're perishing, and they're helpless? What they need right now is compassion, because that what can't distract from that why forever. Maybe your friends spend way too much money on stuff. They're buying new cars and new shoes, and they're going to the soccer games, and they're going to the football games and the basketball games, and they're always posting on social media about their new stuff. And you look at them, you say, this is really unhealthy, and you want to make a moral judgment about them. Oh, they're just materialistic, right? At the core of this is just someone who's a spendthrift. This is someone who just wants to make it rain. They have not gone through Financial Peace University. Dave Ramsey would tell them, that does not work in the envelope system, my friend, right? You want to have that conversation. But Jesus comes along, and he looks at them, and he asks a different question. He has compassion. He says, these are people who are helpless. Is it possible our friends are spending to get more stuff because they're trying to use their stuff to distract from the fact that they have a lack of why? They don't know. They don't know why they keep doing this. They don't know why they're here. They don't know why their parents left them. They don't know why they can't receive love or can feel loved. And Jesus says, I have compassion on them because they're helpless. I was talking, with this, uh, uh, I was talking about this with Alec, and he had this awesome insight. He was so good, I'm going to put it on the screen and quote him. And he's probably going to leave the room because he's embarrassed, but that's cool. He's humble. He's humble. So uh, here's what Alec said. He said, it's not bad to fill your why with something. It's not bad to fill this emptiness with something. But the trick is to fill it with the best possible something, and that something's Jesus. Everybody is born with a God-shaped hole in their lives, asking this question of why. Everybody wrestles with the why. And it's okay to fill that why with something. We're designed to fill it, to, to fill that gaping hole in our soul. But the best possible thing to fill it with is Jesus. And so that's why Jesus, when he looks on the crowds, he has compassion. And that's why he ministers to them. And that's why in Orlando in 2018, he looks at the crowds of Orlando who are non-religious, and he has compassion on them. And you know what he does? He inspires and he equips every single person in this room to go be the hands and the feet of Jesus to help our friends fill their souls with the only thing that's going to satisfy, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Jesus who loves us lavishly when we don't deserve it, and sometimes when we actively fight against him and he still loves us the same. Jesus wants to equip and inspire all of us to reach our friends with the gospel of Jesus for his glory, for our good, and for the good of Orlando.
And so, friends, I want to talk today practically about three steps that are going to help us to take this first step in inviting our friends to come to church. Because church is going to be an integral part of that. At some point, you're going to come gather with other believers. You lead someone to Christ. At some point, you don't have all the answers. You've got to go gather with other believers. At some point, you can't sing. You've got to come gather with other believers and go find someone who can sing to help you make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? And so church is going to be an integral part, and that's great. Because all of us here, we spend most of our time figuring out a way to resource y'all with everything we can give you so that you can be the best ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Orlando. And so I want to talk about three ways you can take steps towards that here today. And so we're going to talk about how to have compassion on my city. Number one, we're going to pray for compassion. We're going to pray for compassion. I have an A up there. Just disregard the A. Pray for compassion, not pray for a compassion. It's not like it's some you know, disease in the wild, wild west in the 1800s. Well, I got a case of the compassion. Um, We got to pray for compassion. We're going to have to pray, right? Some of us, it's hard. It's not going to be hard for us. We have a lot of moral uh, inclinations towards judging people, and it's because we're trying to follow the rules, and we don't like rule breakers. We're the older brother in the prodigal son story. So for many of us, we're going to need to pray for compassion because it doesn't come naturally. Number two, we're going to need to pray for awareness of God's movement. Pray for awareness of how God's moving. Pray for awareness of God's movement. Some of us, again, we're just unaware God's moving all around us, and we just don't take the time. We're so busy and distracted with our phones and everything else to sit down and just go, God, where are you moving around me? What friends do I need to invest in and begin inviting to come to church with me? Where are they at? Finally, we need to pray that God raises up laborers. We need to pray that God raises up laborers. Uh, The last thing Jesus says in this passage is that we are, as disciples, to pray to the God of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. Here's the thing about Orlando. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people who are just waiting for someone to come and talk to them about Jesus. There's just not enough laborers. It's a labor shortage. The supply is there. There's just no laborers, right? And so we've got to pray that not only God brings people to us, but he brings people to all believers. I don't, I don't think First Orlando needs to get the glory for everybody coming to believe in Jesus. I'm just of the opinion it's not about First Orlando. It's about Jesus. So I don't care how people come to believe in Jesus. I just care that they come to believe in Jesus. If they want to gather with us, great. We'll gather with them. If they want to gather with Celebration across town, awesome, fantastic. If they want to gather with Discover, great. You can go with Discovery Church. That's great. If they want to go to First Baptist Winter Garden, fantastic. Couldn't, couldn't uh, be happier. If they want to go to the east side of town to Faith Assembly, awesome love you like i don't care i just care that people get saved and so let's pray for other churches in the town let's pray for other life groups let's pray for our friends on campus who are part of that other christian organization let's pray that god just raises up laborers i want to finish by telling you guys this cool story that's happened to me over the last year um so i moved into a house that's near magic kingdom um so like at night when disney fireworks go off i don't just see them we feel them in our house so uh, it's like Mary Poppins, you know, when the, when the, you know, the guns go off or whatever, and they're like, okay, it's 6 o'clock, time for dinner. That's kind of our house because we're that close to Magic Kingdom. And in our neighborhood, there are a couple different Indian families. Um, and uh, right next door, in fact, my neighbor is uh, from India, uh, and his name is Raj. And we moved in, and I kind of met him. We're out mowing our grass. I saw him, and I was like, okay, that's my neighbor. And I noticed he had a daughter that was about my daughter's age, and I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, but we hadn't really engaged much. 
And about a year ago, Pastor David challenged everybody at First Orlando to write three names on this card and begin praying for them. And just pray that God might open doors of conversation about the gospel. And because I'm a pastor, I like did it because I knew I needed to. There would have, I would have ethical problems if I was like, what are your three names? And I didn't have my three names. Um, but I didn't do it out of any kind of like good-heartedness or like obedience or anything like that. I'll just be freely, you know, honest about that. And so I wrote my three names down, put it on my nightstand, and I would, before I go to sleep, I'd see it and be like, okay, God, I'm going to pray for Raj and these other two people. Well, what, a funny thing happened along the way. Um, one day, Raj's daughter came over to our house, knocked on our door, and I opened up, and she's there, and she's like, hey, can I play with your daughter? And I was like, uh, like, there's this Indian girl, like, just asking me, she's like, hey, can I come in your house and just play with your daughter? And like, I'm aware that I'm a male, and this is a girl, and I'm like, I don't know if this is a to catch a predator situation or something like that, so I'm, I'm like freaking out, so I like look outside, and I see like her mom is right there, and I'm like, okay, hey, it's cool, I'm a cool, okay person, like everything's okay, so like I stand out on the porch, I'm like, hi, like I really have a daughter, and so I brought my daughter over, I was like, hi, this is okay, and so I'm like, hey, why don't we go play in the backyard, which has no gate and no fence, and everyone can see from a satellite keyhole, you know, image that everyone's okay, right, so they go outside, and they play for like an hour, and they're just like best friends, like immediately, and then she's like, okay, I'm going to go home. I'm like, okay, bye. And so I, you know, we walk her, my wife and I, we walk her home. And like, you know, it's all of four feet. We're like, okay, we're at our home now, right? And so we walk in, and then there's Raj. He comes out. He's like, hi. And we engage, and we talk. And we're like, cool. And he's just like, hey, we should get together and have food sometime. And I'm like, okay. And I was like, uh, why don't I send you some dates? And he's like, okay. And I'm like, Okay. And I walked back home, and I was like, Natalie, you know the three names? Number one, just ask me to dinner. Like, what's going on? <laughs> like, I wasn't even being obedient. It just happened, right? Maybe the gospel is true. Like, I'm just thinking that in my mind. Like, this is incredible. And so um, pretty soon after that, they came over for dinner, and we had, like, this July 4th, uh, like, barbecue party or whatever. And so it's, like, all these people from First Orlando who are in our small group, they were over. And I invited them to come over, and they came over, and they cooked Indian food, and it was awesome. And it was crazy spicy. And we were all like, oh, my gosh, this is so awesome. Um, and so they met our friends, and we kind of met them, and it was, like, super fun. And I was like, hey, we should do this again. And they were like, okay. And that was, like, in July. And so every time I've been mowing now or outside, we've kind of walked out. I'm like, hey, Raj. He's like, hey, Doug. And we just talk about things. I remember, like, shortly thereafter, I walked out, and Raj is there, and I'm here. And I'm like, hey, dude, what's going on? He's like, he's like, oh, not much. I had a good day at work. And I was like, okay. And it hit the awkward point where I knew I, I could try to force the conversation, but I c it could go really poorly. And so what I should do is just turn and say, all right, cool, have a good day, and go back to my house. But I did not do that. <laughs> Instead, what I thought in my mind was this, and because I thought it, I said it immediately with no filtering. I was like, cool, so how about cricket, right? And as I said it, as I said it, I'm, it's, like a, it's like a cough. You can't help it. You're like, oh, well, cricket. Oh, good, stop coughing, right? It comes out. It would be like if his wife came out. I was like, oh, so you're pregnant? Cool. And she's like, no, like it was one of those situations. And he looks at me kind of like with a like really serious look. And I was like, crush. Like, and he's like, I'm glad you asked. I love cricket. And so I was like, yes. Like, Jesus, this is two gracious things you've done for me, right? Like, I didn't even deserve this. It's a, I started singing Amazing Grace. And so he starts going, and I, 
I talking to him about cricket. He's saying all these terms. It's like the Sandlot. I'm writing these things down. I'm like, cool, yeah, yeah, the bat. Yeah, okay, whatever. And so I go home, and I, like, research everything about cricket. Apparently, India and Pakistan have this huge rivalry in cricket, and he's team India, and they have this rookie, and they pay him $2 million a year, and he's, like, had a so-so season. And my neighbor across the street is from Pakistan, and so I always see them outside, and I'll walk up, and I'll be like, hey, guys, talking about that cricket match? And they look at me, and they're like, yes, we are. And I'm like, Yeah! This is awesome. It's like I found this secret foray into Indian and Pakistani culture, and I love it. And so I'll walk up now and just say things, or at that point, I walk up and I'll just be like, man, how about that rookie? He's really underperforming. And they're like, I know, $2 million to pay him. And I'm like, dude, this is awesome. Like, I could totally live in India. I am ready, right? <laughs> Food, cricket, I'm in, right? And so we just kind of developed this relationship over the fall. We would talk, and I was like, this is, Natalie, this is going really awesome. And then Christmas time happened. And so I go outside, and I'm putting up my Christmas stuff, and I look over at their house, and I was like, well, I guess I'll put the Christmas lights out, and then they'll know, like, it's Christianity, and we'll talk about that, right? So I go back inside. I come back out the next day, and I look, and Raj's house is like Clark Griswold's house. <laughs> like, I have, like, this many strands in my bushes. It's, like, really low budget. Raj is, like, stapling globe lights to his roof, and he's asking me to help if the wreath is, like, perfectly centered on there. And he gets done, and he comes in, and he turns it on, and it's like, you know, everyone's power in the neighborhood goes down because he's turned on his house. And he kind of gives me, like, this conversation. He just walks up to me, and he's like, you know, this isn't even my holiday, Doug. Like, uh, you really ought to step your game up. And I was like, wow. We have reached a new level of friendship where he's, like, talking smack. This is awesome. Like, I am in, right? And then it got even better. Um, his daughter's birthday is in December, and so he and his wife come over one day, and they say, hey, our daughter's having a birthday. Would you guys like to come over? And I'm like, sure. And so I'm thinking, you know, it's on a school night. I'm like, it's going to be at like 5 o'clock, and then it'll be over at like 6 or 6.30. No, apparently Indian birthday parties start at like 8 at night, even on a school night. So like I show up, and they're like, oh, you're a little early. It's, we got another hour or so. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Okay. So we walk in, and we have the party, and I walk in, and this is a photo from the party, so I want you to notice what this looks like. Show this photo, okay? We're the only white people there. <laughs> it's a sea of brown people from India. They're all speaking their dialects, and I'm just like... <laughs> like, all the girls are in princess outfits. Um, all the parents are in this, like, the wives are in this, like, draping, flowing outfits, dots on the middle of the head. I'm, like, in, like, UCF shorts and a college ministry T-shirt, and I stick out like a sore thumb. I'm, I, a sore thumb. It's just crazy. I'm just walking up to people. I'm like, okay, so how about cricket, right? Like, that's <laughs> it's my only conversation, and they're just like, okay, yeah, yeah. And so that's the whole thing. My daughter right there, Grace, you know, obviously the white one in the photo, she's... She's having the best time of her life. They're including her and involving her. And I just had this moment where uh, I actually took this photo. I had this moment. They're like, Doug, take a photo. And I took it, and I was like, this is a mission field next door. I don't have to get on a plane. I can just literally go next door, and it's this whole culture. And not one of them knows Jesus, and not one of them is aware that that's even going on. This is incredible. But it gets better. It's Christmas time, and Raj... Uh, in those conversations, he'd be like, so you're a pastor. And I was like, yes. And he's like, you're a Catholic? I'm like, no, I'm Baptist. What's the difference? And I'm like, I'm glad you asked. 
because I have a PhD in church history and no one ever asked me this question. And this is my one shot to just tell you everything about church history. No, that's not what I said. Uh, I just kind of like helped him understand. And he was like, so you're the only pastor. I'm like, no, there's like 20 pastors on our staff. And he's like, and you're the big church on John Young and I-4. I'm like, yeah. So he's asking me all these questions over all these conversations. And then like December 20th, I'm outside, I'm getting mail. He walks up and he goes, Doug, can I come to your church on Christmas Eve? And I was like, yes, you can, right? <laughs> would you like to follow us? We have a car. You can follow us. Would you like to ride with us? We can take your whole family. Which service would you like to come to? We have five of them. Like, are you, are you up early? Are you up late? We can handle whatever you want. When you come, if you'll find me, I'll give you concierge service. Like, I will totally give you a backstage tour. I'm, like, so excited. He's like, Doug, I just want to come to Christmas Eve. Maybe take it down a notch for me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, so I told him all the services, and he was like, okay. And you know what happened? He came to church on Christmas Eve. First time he ever came to church. It's incredible. All I did was like write some names on a card and put it on my nightstand and half-heartedly even pray for it. And God opened up all of this possibility. I didn't plan when we conceived our daughter and he conceived his daughter. It just happened, right? I was doing the thing guys do naturally. And we had a daughter. Same with him, right? And they're the same age. Did I control that? No, because God was sovereign. He knew a long time ago there would be a guy named Raj who was going to move in next to me, and I was going to move in, and we were going to have daughters, and that was going to be a touch point for the gospel. God is doing all of this stuff because when Jesus looks at Orlando, friends, stay with me, when he looks at everybody in Orlando, in your neighborhood, in my neighborhood, he has compassion on them. And the most compassionate thing Jesus could do is place a believer next door in your cubicle in your school, on your campus, in your job. He puts a Christian there. It's not just because you're there to make money. You're there to be a gospel bearer. And God did all of that. And I wasn't even a good Christian. I wasn't even a good evangelist. And I'm a professional Christian. And he did all that by his grace and his mercy because no one in Orlando loves non-believers more than Jesus. And so if you'll lean into that, over the next three weeks, if you'll lean into that, really start praying, you'll be impressed with what God might do. Because the God who is real could do something that you could not even really believe. The God who is real could do something you could not even really believe. He might just nudge your friend to ask a question so that they might get their why answered by you. And so here's what I want us to do to respond. I want to invite you to pray. Just wherever you are, bow your heads, get comfortable. We're just going to spend a couple of minutes praying here. I want to invite you to pray right now. And maybe you say something like this, Jesus, I don't have compassion. Or maybe I do, but just would you increase my compassion? Let's just, just take a few seconds to pray that right now. Jesus, would you help all of us in this room to see people the way you see them, that we might have compassion on them. In your name we pray, amen. Now, where you are, I want to invite you to pray a second way. We're going to pray three ways here. I want you to pray right now for awareness of what God's doing and moving in your, in your part of the city, in your campus, in your job. would you open the eyes of our heart make us aware of where you're moving 
you help us to know when we need to jump in and join you in that? In your name we pray, amen. Finally, I want to invite you to pray that God raises up laborers in Orlando, at our church, at other churches, Catholic churches, Baptist churches, it doesn't matter, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, I don't care, just pray that God raises up laborers. salvation. You're getting people ready to be saved. You're doing tons of things in people's hearts, beginning to, to increase their longing for a clear and concise answer to the why question. May you raise up laborers who will simply walk in obedience and speak in obedience. If they can just sing the lyrics to Amazing Grace, that's sufficient to just proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the people who are desperately wanting to know an answer to the why question. Would you raise up those laborers? all across Orlando, for your glory, for our good, for the good of the city that we love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'll invite you to stand as we're going to respond and sing a song. And here's how we're going to do this. Um, normally in this time, we're going to, you know, we have people here to pray. I, I, I wanted us just to do something. I want our posture to kind of demonstrate our attitude that we're going to take out of here, which is declarative. This is Scott Frost in the locker room before the Peach Bowl, before they play Auburn, saying, we're going to go take these guys down. This is us looking at Orlando and saying to Satan, no more. No more. You have no control here. This is God's town. It's a city that's beautiful. It's not ugly. And Jesus, you're going to be king here. And we're going to declare something here today. We're going to declare something about the resurrected king. Justin and the band are going to lead us in a song called Resurrecting. And so I want to invite you however you are, wherever you are, whatever state you're in, to just get your heart and your body in just kind of an aggressive posture. In sports, you'd call this like being in like the athletic position. You just get ready. Some of you are going to need get, to get hype here, okay? And so here's what I'll ask. Let's get hype orderly. So if you got to get super hype, if you think you're going to be distracted, that's cool. Just go to the back. Try not to knock over the, the pipe and draping, but we can't make promises, right? You just do you. Whatever posture you got to get in to get your heart to declare this, Jesus, I'm on board. I'm going to be a laborer for this harvest, and we're going. I want to invite you to do that now. Is Justin the band are going to sing.